0: Good morning. We're in our fourth lesson in the book of Hebrews, and we're dealing with chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, words of warning and exhortation. It was during this past year that I was down at the seminary, and one of the professors said to me, I am so thankful for men like you who have remained faithful. And I, I, I kind of walked away from that thinking, uh, that sounds more like the exception than the rule. Uh, and he was speaking with respect to seminary students. And, and then when I was with a, a good friend of mine who who's graduated the year before I did, we got to talking about classmates and he began to go down the list of all of the men who had sort of checked out morally or, or theologically or some other way. And and you're saying to yourself, you know, when we look at this text in Hebrews chapter two, it's not really hypothetical at all. And and some of the people that would be addressed are people we would not expect or suspect that uh, that they would have difficulties uh, in their walk. It was a year ago in, in uh, on August 1st that the bridge over the Mississippi River uh, collapsed, and I, I did a little search to try and figure out. I don't know if they ever actually figured out why, but, but I think we can all agree on this. It looked all right. It looked all right. But at some point in the game, the stresses were just greater than it could sustain, whether that was rust or bad design or whatever is kind of academic. It just couldn't sustain the weight. And I wonder if that's not true, uh, in, in, in some Christians' lives. That, that on the outside it looks okay, but when the stresses come, uh, the difficulties come in life, then all of a sudden the weaknesses begin to emerge. And we, and we see failure. So that's why we're talking about it, not to mention the fact that it's the next set of verses in our, in our text. But it finally is the place at which the author comes to his application. And so we don't have to fudge here to work for application. He is making the application for us. Now, just to remind ourselves where we are, the first 14 verses, are talking about the supremacy of the Son. God has spoken finally and fully in His Son, and His Son is higher than the angels. And we see that list of seven characteristics buttressed by seven Old Testament texts. And we say, the Son is indeed supreme. And then the exhortation comes that we should listen to Him in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I might just say at this point, this exhortation is, is in a sense, parenthetical. If you were to take verses 1 through 4 and remove them, you would find that verse 14 flows right into verse 5. So it seems to me that the author said, all right, I've gone far enough, it's time for application. And he just pauses here to get to where we are in the application, the exhortation stage. And then the remainder of the chapter is talking about the son who becomes lower than the angels in order to identify with lost men and to bring them to salvation. And then because of that, he is once again exalted to the height that belongs rightfully to him. You will also note this is our first warning text in the book of Hebrews. And of course, those are the uh, some of the places that people have their greatest difficulty. Let's look at verse 1, shall we? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Multiple times the word we is used here in these verses. Us is used once. And uh, you can see that we've got to come to terms with <laughs> what does we mean. Now he's looking back in the therefore he's building his case on the basis of what he has said in chapter one, but we have to ask ourselves what who is being referred to by the we? You could, uh, if you read John MacArthur's commentary, you would see that he believes that's Jewish unbelievers, those who have heard the gospel and they've sort of been close, but they just never crossed the line. Uh, and they're uh, Jewish unbelievers. That would be a nice, safe feeling for the rest of us. Too bad I don't believe it's true. And and then, two, does it refer to believers? Or, number three, does it refer to the church, most of whom are believers? And from here and there, you may find one who who is not. That, frankly, is my inclination. But let's look at what Hebrews has to say. I mean, I don't, the reason I'm going to linger here is because if we don't figure out who we is, (laughs) then we're going to have trouble all the way through the book. It just seems to me you've got to settle this question. And, and the author, I believe, does that. And, uh, I even as I was sitting here, I was thinking, why didn't I think of that text to put in as one of the others? But look at these texts. Hebrews chapter three, verses one and two. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, doesn't sound like outsiders to me. Partners in a heavenly calling. Take note of Jesus, the apostle and high priest, whom we confess. Sounds like fellow believers, doesn't it? Uh, Down to Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 14. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart that forsakes the living God, but exhort one another each day as long as it's called today. Now, this is one of those kind of tougher texts... But my point is, it doesn't say uh, be careful that you don't have an unbelieving heart, so repent and believe. It says exhort one another. That sounds like an exhortation to fellow believers within the body of Christ. Here's the text I left out. It's not on your screen. Hebrews 5. I don't know why I didn't think about it. Hebrews 5, at the end of, of, of uh, that chapter, the author is saying, I want to talk to you about Melchizedek, but <laughs> I just can't because you haven't grown up. You ought to be teachers by now. Does that sound like he's talking to people who are unbelievers? Not to me, it doesn't. sounds to me like he's talking to professing believers who have not matured, who have neglected God's Word uh, in their life. Hebrews chapter 6. Now, the thing I want you to notice is when you're in Hebrews chapter 6, if there are two texts that most people wish weren't in Hebrews, it's chapter 6 and chapter 10. So what I want you to see is in very close proximity to some of the most severe warnings that we get, we get these words of encouragement. That, I think, must catch our attention. Verse 9, But in your case, dear friends, even though we speak this, these words of warning, we are convinced of better things related to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love you have demonstrated for his name in having served and continuing to serve the saints. But we passionately want each of you to demonstrate the same eagerness for the fulfillment of your hope to the end. In other words, persevere. Not repent and be saved. Persevere in your faith. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 36. Again, In the context of a serious word of warning, verse 32, the author says, But remember the former days when you endured a harsh conflict of suffering after you were enlightened. At times you were publicly exposed to abuse and afflictions. At other times you came to share with others who were treated in that way. For in fact, you shared the sufferings of those in prisons and you accepted the confiscation of your belongings with joy because you knew that you certainly had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your... Tom's back there beaming. Cut it out. Do not throw away your confidence. Not do not throw away your faith. Do not throw away your confidence. For you need endurance, the writer says. Now, look at Hebrews chapter 12 and the way it starts, and again, the mood and and the focus that the author has in the exhortations. Verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race set out for us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, For the joy set out for him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Think of him who endured such opposition against himself by sinners, so that you may not grow weary in your souls and give up. You have not resisted yet resisted to the point of bloodshed in your struggle against sin. And have you forgotten the exhortation addressed to you as sons? My son, do not scorn the Lord's discipline or give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son that he accepts. Now, look down at chapter 13 and look at the exhortations. If this book is addressed to Hebrew people, Jewish people, who have heard the gospel but have never crossed the line, then why would these exhortations be given? Uh, 13.1, let love of the brethren continue. 13.2, don't neglect hospitality. 13.3, remember the prisoners. 13.4, be sexually pure. 13.5 and 6, be free from the love of money. 13.7, remember your leaders. 13.9, don't be carried away with strange teachings. And 13.15, offer up a sacrifice of praise. 13.17, obey your leaders. Now look at the way it closes in 13. Verse 20, now may the God of peace, who by the blood of the eternal covenant brought us back from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ, equip you with every good thing to do his will, working in us what is pleasing before him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory and forever. Amen. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, bear with my message of expert. exhortation for in fact i have written to you briefly now i have to tell you when i look at all those passages i have to say the writer when he says we is talking to a church that is filled with believers and may have an exceptional unbeliever as as any church would but this is a te- this is a book these are warnings that are warnings to believers not as i understand it to unbelievers Now, it says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Here's the exhortation. Again, the therefore looks back on the fact that God has spoken in his Son, his Son who stands supreme above all others. Surely we should be listening to him. We must is saying this is our duty this is something that is imperative for us. And the reason is because God's spoken finally and fully in a Son who is supreme. How could you not listen to Him? Now, when He says we must pay closer attention, then I think you have to say it isn't as though no attention was given at all, just not good enough. <laughs> it's I'm sure wives could identify with this. Sometimes, you know, when the wife comes in and talks to the husband and he's either looking at the TV or reading the paper or something, and she says, I can say this because Jeanette's in the nursery, but, you know, she she comes up and she says something and you're sort of, "Uh uh-huh. That's kind of what God's getting from these folks is they're paying attention, kind of, but not really. And that's not enough. So it must be closer. And he says, closer attention because there is neglect, verse 3. Now, I have to tell you, neglect and reject are not the same words to me. It is one thing to have something you don't pay attention to, (laughs) you know, like a car, when you just let it go until the wheels fall off. You can do that. But rejection says, I'm not going to have the car at all. That's another story. But it's not the force, as I understand it, of the author's words in these verses. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. If you have an ESV or you have a New American Standard, it will say drift away from it. I don't think so. Number one, it's not on the text. It's in italics, fortunately, in the New American Standard. So it's telling you, we put it there, but it isn't in the, in the original text. ESV just stuck it there and didn't bother to tell you so far as I could see. But it isn't drift, drifting away from it, my friend. It's drifting away from him, is it not? Is that not what chapter one is about? He is the one who, through whom God has spoken. It is He is the one that we would be drifting away from. Not, not just His word, but from Him Himself. What does it mean to drift away? Well, it can mean to slip away. For instance, it can be used of a ring slipping off of your finger. It can be used of something, I think, falling, sort of falling through the cracks, we might say. It can be used in a, of Of a vessel that has a leak and you pour something in it, you come back a little bit later and it 's gone it 's slipped away uh, it 's gone away but it 's probably the nautical sense that we that we would see here, and that is the sense that you you haven 't really moored it or or you haven 't taken account of the winds, and so you just sort of the currents come along and you 're just gone now. Most of you didn't grow up on a lake, I did, fishing, and every once in a while I'd probably just lay out there in the boat and have my fishing pole over the side and doze, and it's amazing where you can end up when you're not looking. I mean, all of a sudden you're saying, whoa, the wind's kind of taking you one, some other place, that's drifting away. I have to say, I really love um, Kent Hughes' uh, definition of drifting away, and so I put it on the screen for you. That church's experience 2,000 years ago intersects our lives in this way. Drifting is the besetting sin of our day. And as the metaphor suggests, it's not so much intentional as from unconcern. You drift unknowingly. You don't, you don't paddle in the opposite direction. You just float that way. Christians neglect their anchor, Christ, and begin to quietly drift away. There's no friction, no dramatic sense of departure, but when the winds of trouble come, the things of Christ are left far behind, even out of sight. The writer of Revelation uses different language, but refers to the same thing when he says to the ostensibly healthy Ephesian church, yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. I understand drifting away to be that unconscious departure from the things of God and more importantly from the Son of God that is not even detected and not evident until the stresses and strains of life come on. Now I'm going to parenthetically say I know that almost everybody in the world of commentators talks about how the heat of persecution is all cranked up and so on, and and they're tempted, therefore, to deny their faith. I don't see it. I don't see it. I see this as a time of ease. Now, I see from chapter 10 that there were days in the past where they lost their property and whatever. It seems to me that things have eased up. It seems to me that in the near future, things are going to heat up again. But the most dangerous period of time for people to drift is when things are going easy. And, and that's the sense, that, at least, that I get. Here's a comment that uh, Hughes uh, has from C.S. Lewis out of Mere Christianity. He says, Lewis says, as a matter of fact, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by an honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? And in my experience, here's what happens. They drift and they drift and they drift and then some temptation comes their way, some adversity comes their way, some kind of moral stress comes their way. And then they break. They snap. But but the reality is it's been in the making. It's been in the making. The drifting has been going on, and then finally something causes the snap. Now looking at verses 2 and the first half of verse 3. "'For if the message spoken through angels proved to be so firm that every violation or disobedience received its just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation?' Let's talk for a minute about through the angels, spoken through the angels. That's one of the things that you see in chapter 1 and chapter 2. There's this heavy emphasis on angels. So let's just look at a couple of texts and, and get in our minds this sort of Jewish mindset that I think is there, Old Testament mindset. I've put on the screen uh, Deuteronomy 33.2. Note, this is the, par- the parenthesis comes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation, of that, and I, and I mentioned to you before, most often in Hebrews, when the Old Testament is cited, it's cited from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, not the Hebrew text. That's why it may look different to you than what you find in your Bible, which comes from the Hebrew text. But at the end, when it, it speaks about him coming uh, from Sinai and revealing himself to Israel, and then it says, uh, with his right hand, he gave a fiery law to them. But the Septuagint says, in his right hand were his angels with him. And the the author no doubt had that in mind. But we don't need the rest there. I'm going to skip Acts 7.38 and go to 7.53 when Stephen is talking. And he says, You received the law by decrees given by angels, but you did not obey it. So there is that sense that somehow in the giving of the law, the angels are involved in some mediatorial way. And the thrust of it is, you know, if the Old Testament law was given in the involvement of angels... And, and you ought to listen to that, and you should. The, the, the Old Testament saints surely should have. When you have something mediated by Christ Himself, by God Himself in the person of Christ, then you really ought to listen, right? It's like a, somebody uh, having an ambassador from the United States come to their country. And, and you ought to listen to that. But when the president comes and speaks to you face to face, good idea to pay attention. So look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Paul is writing here, and he says, Why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the arrival of the descendant to whom the promise had been made. It was administered through angels by an intermediary. So the Old Testament saint... And the Jews and and the people of that day, familiar with this Jewish background, had this idea that the angels were involved in that. And the argument of the writer is, if listening to what came from angels is important, then listening to what came through the sun is more important. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? And I asked myself, wait a minute, wait a minute. He went from this thing of what we have heard to salvation. How does that work? Here's the way I understand it. When you look from, from the New Testament point of view, when you look back at the law, especially the book of Romans, would you not agree with me that Paul is saying the law could not save, right? Romans chapter three, for by the works of the flesh, for the, I'm sorry, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Nobody can be saved by law keeping. The only thing the law can do is condemn, and it 's very important that it does because we need to acknowledge our sin in order to see the provision that God has given in Christ. so in that sense, when you look at the Old Testament, primarily you would see condemnation, and so when people neglected the Old Testament law and it had its penalties, then severe consequences came now again i 'm going to disagree. Uh, with our brother in California, that that I don't think he's talking about hell, hell here. He's talking about discipline. I mean, look at David. David didn't go to hell because of his sin, but he sure paid a price. Moses was kept out of the land because of his sin, but he didn't go to hell. Miriam got leprosy, but she didn't go to hell because of that. So there's all kinds of judgment in the Old Testament that comes upon God's people, his believers, for their neglect of his word. And he's saying, if that came about in that way, and now we look at the New Testament as the message of the gospel and the message which brings salvation, so Old Testament condemnation, New Testament salvation, if you neglect this message, then how do you escape? Escape what? I don't think it means escape eternal torment. I think it's saying if a believer neglects that salvation that has been given through Christ, there are going to be consequences. We'll see that in a moment. Because you see that in the next slide there, or at least for me, maybe you're there already. Uh, Look at 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 11. Here's a man who is living with his father's wife He is being turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, right? That his spirit may be saved. Now, if you were to talk to that guy, and if you... I said to somebody I remember one time in my life, they basically said, I'm going to sin. What's it going to cost me? I've already made up my mind. I'm going to sin. What's it going to cost me? And I said to that person, let me tell you this. I don't know exactly what it'll cost you, But I know every person who's ever asked that question has never come away smiling. You will not think it was worth it when it's done. It's severe. And it doesn't have to be the loss of, of, of uh, eternal salvation. It can be some terrible consequences. First Corinthians 11, for this reason, and by the way, there is the disregard of our Lord Jesus Christ and his work. How does that disregard for salvation work itself out practically? It works itself out at the Lord's Supper where their conduct is drunk and disorderly, and because of their disregard for their salvation, they disregarded our Lord Jesus Christ and the symbols and some of Them died, some of them were sick. Serious consequences. Thus, we will not escape divine discipline for our neglect. It was first communicated through the Lord, and then it was confirmed by those who heard him, and then God confirmed their witness. I think the question is this. The question in people's minds is: okay, you've said back in chapter one that God spoke finally and fully in his son. But we don't have a book. Well, you might have a red-letter New Testament, but that's as close as you're going to get. We don't have a book that was authored by Jesus in that sense. So how do we know that what was spoken through the Son, it has been reliably transmitted to us? How do we know we have an authoritative word? Well, it seems to me this is the answer. It was spoken first by our Lord. Then there were those who heard it. It was confirmed to them. Remember uh, Second Peter Peter says, we don't, we don't have a word that we take lightly. We saw the majestic glory. We saw the transfiguration. God underscored his words. By the way, Peter was the guy that was always talking when he should have been quiet. That's why I identify with him. But Peter was there, remember, and he says, why don't we make three tabernacles, blah, 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 blah. And, and God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter, for goodness sakes, be quiet and listen. Well, it was authenticated. Peter heard, and and they then gave the word to us in written form, and then God confirmed that through signs and wonders and miracles. Now, that's a point of debate for a lot of people. Here's my opinion on that point. There are places in the world where the word of God has never been heard. It would not surprise me. I am not saying it has to happen. It would not surprise me to know that God worked in miraculous ways so that when people heard the preaching of that word, they said, wow, things happen. It wouldn't surprise me. God is perfectly free to do that, and I'm not going to be the one holding up my hand saying, oh, wait a minute, that was back then, can't do it now. He's free, trust me, he's free to do that. Now, it says gifts by the Holy Spirit. I noticed at least some seem to look at those as... as uh, as the, the the spectacular gifts. But I'm not sure that's true at all. When I look at Ephesians chapter four and I see that the Son has been exalted up and then he comes and he bestows gifts on men as a as a demonstration of his victory it seems to me that God is still demonstrating His power and authority and grace through the gifts that He gives through His church. That's my personal opinion. So I don't see why we have to somehow make those gifts only certain gifts. It seems to me that those gifts are there. And by the way, Ephesians chapter 4 makes it clear, those gifts are there until the church has been built up to its full maturity, and we're not there yet. So in my opinion, that's still applicable. The danger of drifting. Isn't that what this is all about? The danger of drifting. Here's another statement from Hughes. The transcending concern of this warning text is for those who have heard. Even more, the concern is not for those who reject the gospel, but for those who ignore it. The concern is for one's attitude the one who has let the greatness of Christ slip away, the one who no longer marvels at the atonement, the one who no longer has a desire for the word, the one who really does not pray in his spirit, the one who is drifting back to where he came from and has little concern about his drifting. That's the way I see it. And and friends, I think that's a danger that all of us need to take to heart. I believe that every one of us needs to say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel. Just say, change the word prone to drift. (laughs) That's what it means, isn't it? Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. That's the danger I believe the writer is addressing. So when am I drifting? Well, I'm not sure that I've got all the answers, but I I, I put a few things down for you. By the way, one of them I'm going to slip away before I get stoned for saying, but we'll start with a safe one. I'm drifting when my sense of wonder wanes, We were up in the Pacific Northwest, and you know that's home to us, but we looked at some mountains, Mount Rainier, Mount Hood, Mount Shasta. We were on the ocean. You look at that, and you see the vast expanse of that. And you know what happens? People who live up there, they drive to work, and here's this mountain looming, looming in front of them. They don't even see it. They've lost the sense of majesty and wonder. Is that not true for us? I mean, look at what we see in chapter 1. And yet we get kind of ho-hum and we get accustomed to that and we lose the sense of the wonder of the fact that the one who took on human flesh for us is exalted above all of the angels, the highest one under the Father in the universe. Two, nearness to God is ancient history. You're always talking about the good old days, <laughs> as, though, as though they're gone. You think back in those days when you were first saved and whatever, but, but the more it begins to look like history, the more you've drifted, and I've drifted, from it as I see it. My love and desire for God's Word falls short of what I see in Psalm 119. Man, you read Psalm 119, oh, how I love you, law, law. You know, it's my meditation day and night. Man, is that the way we feel about God's word? If it isn't, we're drifting. The realities of heaven and hell fade into the background. The realities of heaven for us, the realities of hell for our unsaved neighbor, and we get philosophical, don't we? We get philosophical about that. And we don't say to ourselves, that person is going to hell. I remember Dr. Horace Wood. I don't know if only you oldies would remember him, but Believer's Chapel. And I went out to lunch with him, and he was well into his 80s. And we were sitting in a restaurant. He says, Bob, Bob, these people are lost. These people are lost. They need to hear about Jesus. Saying, yes, that's right. He's got it. I'm unaware of the ever-present pull of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We become so much a part of our culture that we do not see how drastically far from God it is, and we actually feel at home in it. That's not the pilgrim mentality that we see of the believer in the Scriptures. Prayer, Bible study, witnessing, and going to church are a duty, not a delight. We do it because we're supposed to, not because we delight to do it. The Lord's table is dull and preaching, I, I I would have put good in there so I could excuse you know people could get bored here if they want, but but whatever you define as good. When the Lord's supper and good preaching becomes dull and boring, it isn't because there's something lacking on God's side. It's because we drifted. Okay, here's the one we get in trouble on. My Theology is in the the Fiction section of the library. I was talking yesterday to a good friend who's teaching a Bible study of young women. And she said to me, it is amazing how these young women are saying to me about the book, The Shack. I'm two-thirds of the way through it, doing my duty. And they're saying, that book revolutionized my life. Now, don't run out and buy it to find out how bad it is. But I gotta tell you, it, it is unbelievably bad, theologically speaking. And people, Christians, are saying, Oh, I have a whole new way of looking at God. It's unbelievable. And I, and I thought to myself, how could they get that far? Now, try me on for size on this. Because some theology that's not that bad is being taught in a fictional way. How many Christians are going to fiction books to learn about the spiritual warfare or or about eschatology, about future things? They're going to fiction books. Now, I'm not saying that fiction books are horrible. I'm saying if they're your source of theology, you're going to the wrong book. Our theology... Does the writer to the Hebrews say, once upon a time, and start spinning some yarn? No. He says, look, this is who our Lord Jesus Christ is. This is what you ought to know. You're immature. Get with it. It seems to me that's the way it ought to be. Probably Ron would agree with me on this point, and my fear is that probably more fiction books are checked out of our library than theology books. So maybe that should tell us something. Not saying to quit reading fiction altogether, but don't get your theology out of fiction, please. Nine, I lack joy and gratitude towards God. And number 10, I'm looking for something more outside of Scripture and outside of Christ. I was thinking about a parallel text that comes from the Apostle Paul, Colossians chapter 1, where I think Don read from Colossians 1, wasn't it this morning? And, and, and you look at the supremacy of Christ in all of that. What does it say in chapter 2? in whom all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Why do we need to go beyond Christ? Why? Why would we think there's something other than him and other than from him that we really need? And then the author goes on, Paul goes on to say, beware of philosophies and whatever, and all of these things which begin to turn us from Christ to go beyond in some way. I see the same thing in 1 Corinthians. Corinthians. I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. And I was thinking about this. I am of Apollos. I am of Christ. Whenever any man says to you, "When you follow me, you follow Christ," that's a little scary to me. Maybe that's the most dangerous one of all. And when you get to First Corinthians chapter four, verse six, he says, "I've spoken figuratively about Paul and Apollos and myself because you need to learn not to go beyond what is written." The only reason those people had a following is because they went beyond Christ and they went beyond his words. And people who are drifting tend to cling to exactly that kind of thing. Now I have one last word to say. Oh, no, I have two last words. How to be an expositional listener. There's a little book. Don't ask me to pronounce this guy's name. I I can say BT, I got that down. I don't know how to pronounce the last name. And when they gave some help about the first name, why in the world they didn't help me on the last name, I don't know. But this is called The Characteristics, uh, or What is a Healthy Church Member? And, And in this book, there's a great little chapter, and it's called How to Be an Expository or Expositional Listener. Look at these things. Meditate on the sermon passage during your quiet time. Two, invest in a good set of commentaries. And by the way, there's a lot of good ones in the church library. Three, talk and pray with friends about the sermon after church. There are different ways to do that, by the way. I would suggest the, uh, the uh, pr- productive ways. Four, listen to and act on the sermon throughout the week. Five, develop the habit of addressing any questions about the text itself. Six, cultivate humility. Those are things to think about. How can we hear better? That's what the author's telling us. Listen carefully. How can we hear better? And just in case there are those who uh, may never have dropped anchor, uh, and that is never come to faith, while this text is primarily not addressed to you, let me just say, if you've never come there in the first place, you need to trust in Jesus. Look at this text. It's a frightening text in a way. Luke chapter 13 Jesus says in verse 24, Exert every effort to enter through the narrow door. That's through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice in the sinner's place. Because many, I tell you, would try to enter and will not be able to. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, then you will stand outside and start to knock on the door and beg him, Lord, let us in. But he will answer you. I don't know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know where you've come from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. Being close, being close is only good in horseshoes, folks. It won't get you to heaven. You have to trust in Jesus. It isn't going to church, having a Christian wife, having a Christian family, having a Christian heritage, whatever it is, it's trusting Jesus as the one made the sacrifice for you. Father, thank you for this exhortation. Help us to listen to the Lord Jesus who speaks to us through his word. We ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen.